The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 2, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzhanovskaya, and a special guest host, Dr. Charlotte Chaiklin. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss how to enhance your teaching on the wards by utilizing backward design with Dr. Kendra Van Kirk. Before we get started with that, Ira, would you remind the audience what we do on the show? Sure, Molly. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Kendra Van Kirk, tonight. We cover tips and tricks to use backward design, stages one, two, and three, to improve your teaching on the wards. And she is a fantastic educator, reminding us kind of concretely how to use those skills and practice them and make it kind of intuitive in the future. And we're so happy to have Dr. Charlotte Jaclyn, who has been helping us behind the scenes on Curbsiders Teach Season 2 here with us tonight. Charlotte, can you introduce yourself with a one-liner? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hello, everyone. I'm a newly minted assistant professor of medicine at the University of Florida and a huge med-ed nerd with an interest in both undergraduate and graduate medical education. Welcome, Charlotte. We have an amazing guest tonight, Dr. Kendra Van Kirk. Dr. Van Kirk is an assistant professor of medicine and pediatrics, as well as an associate program director for the Internal Medicine Pediatrics Residency Program at the University of Miami. Dr. Van Kirk comes from a teaching background with a master's of arts in teaching from Johns Hopkins University and was a sixth grade teacher, especially in science, in Baltimore before joining the field of medicine. She co-created and co-directs the Medical Educator Pathway at the University of Miami. Additionally, she is an Academy of Medical Education Scholars grant recipient and is passionate about graduate medical education and training the next generation of clinician educators. And as a reminder that most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's, let's get, get to, to it. it. <laughs> Well, Dr. Van Kirk, thank you so much for joining us. Are you okay if we call you Kendra for this recording? Yes, definitely. Perfect. Um, Well, we'd like to start with just some questions so that we can get to know you a little bit better. Um, Could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure. Um, I am a med-peds physician with a background in teaching. So I am passionate about medical education, curriculum design, program development, and quality improvement. Um, On a personal note, like I was mentioning, I am a new mom of a beautiful eight-month-old baby girl. And to decompress, I really love to watch British reality TV. So specifically, The Great British Baking Show and The Great Pottery Throwdown. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. No. But they're, they're amazing competition shows, reality TV. And I think it's mainly because I just I envy their cooking skills. And their pottery skills, but also they're like the friendliest, kindest competitors. So I don't know. I really love watching those shows. I love it. I might have to check that out. 
So good. <laughs> Such a good use of the throw. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. Well, maybe, Kendra, can you share how you got involved in medical education or where that passion came from for you? Absolutely. So I have a background in teaching, and I was a sixth grade science teacher in Baltimore before going to medical school. And, you know, it's no secret that depending on where you live in this country or the color of your skin or a variety of other factors that the resources that will be available to you um, and that you are actually able to access will be different. So for me, there are, when I think back to teaching, there are many structural systems in place that perpetuated educational inequities that my students faced. And one that was very predominant in my students' lives was their inability to access quality healthcare and equitable healthcare. So my career really took a shift towards medicine because I wanted to be both an educator and a clinician with a deeper understanding of both systems, both the educational system and the healthcare system. And I wanted to be better equipped to work towards improving those systems. So it's really how I got from education to medicine. And then as far as getting involved specifically with medical education, as my medical training progressed, I recognized more and more that I could probably have a larger impact on those systems and specifically on the healthcare system at large by educating medical trainees. So students, residents, and teaching them not only about the systems that impact our patients' health, but also how to communicate with patients, how to provide the highest level of equitable care possible to every patient that walks through our doors. Um, and, and so that's really when the shift occurred for me during residency that I wanted to focus on medical education for my career. Awesome. Um, and do you have maybe a favorite piece of advice that you got or any feedback you like to give to learners or feedback that you got yourself? That's a great question. Um, feedback that I received, I think one thing in particular, I had um, an attending when I was a resident who really gave me the opportunity to act as a pretending on the inpatient wards. And during that process, you know, it, it really allowed me to hone my leadership skills and my teaching skills. But I received feedback about allowing other learners on the team to kind of have the opportunity to step into those roles. So to as a pretending and then ultimately as an attending to actually take more of a position of facilitator and kind of stepping back. So instead of being the one kind of directing the instruction of the learners on the team, allowing the learners to kind of take more ownership of that themselves. And, and that really had a huge impact for me on how I approached medical education and how I kind of like transformed how I was then as a junior faculty member coming out of residency. I have to say, I just I love the term pretending. I don't know that one. So it's a, it's a good mix of words there. Um, and I, I think that's such a good advice. You know, it is really hard as an early attending or, you know, an early resident leading a team to step back a little bit and feel confident mm -hmm. enough to give space for, for the learners to make their own decisions. Do you have a favorite music or book that you've enjoyed recently? I bet with an eight-month-old, you don't have a ton of time, but any books that you've read in the past that you really like or music that you would recommend? So I'm going to go the music route because I definitely have not had the opportunity to read anything for pleasure recently. Um, but there, <laughs> we do uh, have this one YouTube channel that we found because we needed something different than, you know, your typical kind of baby lullabies. And it's called Hey Bear Sensory. 
I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but essentially it is a YouTube channel with animated fruits and vegetables that are like spinning around and dancing on the screen while simultaneously there's like this great musical track playing in the background. So I actually think it's probably more so for parents than kids, especially an eight-month-old where, you know, I mean, I'm a pediatrician, so I definitely don't recommend screen time for children her age, but we really enjoy it. And it's like anything to kind of prevent you from having to listen to Baby Shark on repeat is all It's just I'm, thinking I'm that sounds better that. than Coco Melon. <laughs> <laughs> so check it out. It's called Hey Bear Sensory. It's on YouTube. It's amazing. It also sounds kind of like a psychedelic experience for folks who are actually watching these like fruits and vegetables dance and like this like cool track that's actually, in the background. That's actually a really good description. Yes. It may cure your alcohol use disorder as well. I know. We just <laughs> talked about the JAMA Psychiatry paper. Everyone please go read. Uh, NYU. Shout out. Let's jump into Fix of the Week. Uh, Ira, do you have one that you want to share? I do. Uh, on the subject of reading, I recently started this book called Never Split the Difference, uh, negotiating um, with Chris Voss. And basically, it's for anybody who wants to kind of take control of conversations that are going to influence your career, your life. It's whether you're a parent, a you know, partner, or somebody who's trying to make uh, kind of a change in their career. He is a former hostage negotiator for the FBI, and he shares his tactics in negotiations and specifically tactical empathy is like his um, kind of uh, secret sauce or one of the tips that he shares. And it's super fascinating because I, uh, while traveling um, and having to negotiate and barter for prices of goods, I try to employ some of his techniques. And it was a hilarious outcome of me just repeating whatever the person talking to me was saying. And I would say variably successful, but this book is really, really fascinating. And it's a short, quick read. And he writes really like in an engaging manner. So if anyone's looking to kind of up their negotiating skills, I'd highly recommend. Molly, how about you or Charlotte? What are y'all? Any picks of the week? I would second. I love that book. I actually just bought a used car using the strategies. What? I've never spoken no no That's awesome. <laughs> well done. Thank you. I was very proud of myself. It's not in my normal nature to probably negotiate, but it's empowering. So I would just second that choice. Awesome. What about do you, you, Molly? Um, I'll pass on the pick of the week this this time, but do you have one that you'd like to recommend? I am reading a kind of similar psychology type book called The Gift of Fear. And it's about intuition and kind of our natural instincts as humans and how um, we can utilize and capitalize on those instincts to uh, protect ourselves. Not that it's kind of a dark place, but sometimes you need to use those instincts to protect yourself. So I would recommend that. Thanks. I'll have to check out both of those. Well, let's hop into our topic today. Um, Charlotte, do you want to get us started off with a case from Cashlock Memorial? Sure. So Charlotte is a brand new attending at Cashlock Memorial Hospital. She is both excited and nervous to start her first wards as an attending and wants to be an effective educator. She comes to you Kendra, as one of her role models, and asks for your advice on how to structure rounds utilizing backward design. And I'll just jump in and say all names have been changed. None of this is based on real people. <laughs> so maybe we can start off with just some basics. Um, what is backward design? Great. So 
when we think about learning in general, having goals and objectives along with your instructional strategies and along with assessments kind of provide the three necessary pieces required for learning to take place. Goals and objectives provide the foundation, instruction delivers the content, and assessments determine the efficacy of the session or course. Um, And they really kind of follow and circle back in a loop so that then after the assessment, you use that information to revise your learning objectives. You can then use it to revise your instructional strategies and so on, kind of continuously in a cycle. When creating educational content, though, a lot of instructors start by identifying the learning activities first, or they think about how to teach content first, and then they develop assessments around those activities and finally try to make probably what end up being rather loose connections to the goals and objectives of the lesson. This is called forward design. And really creating educational content in this way does have its pitfalls. So for example, the overall lesson can lack purpose. The assessment tool may not actually measure the learning objectives at the end of the day. The learning experiences may not at all align with the goals or objectives that you've created. And it's very hard to say with validity that what you've done actually leads to true understanding for your learner. So alternatively, you can kind of combat that by creating educational content using a process called backward design. And backward design is a framework that was described by Grant Wiggins and Jay McTie that calls for educators to first consider the desired results and then to design the curriculum from those identified goals and objectives. So really, it's just kind of flipping what instinctively and intuitively a lot of educators and teachers think they need to do to create a lesson, like really thinking about the activities that they're going to start with and instead says, no, really think about your end goal first and then everything else kind of falls into place. Um, So I can walk through the framework a little bit more in depth. So specifically, stage one is when you want to identify your desired results and ask yourself, what are the goals? What are the learning objectives? What should students know and what should they be able to do? And then secondly, you want to think about what evidence will prove that we have achieved those results, right? So what assessments are actually going to provide the evidence that will show that true understanding and true learning has actually been achieved? So you can think about various types of assessments that would do that. So they could be formative, they could be summative assessments, they could be dialogue-based or performance-based tasks, um, just to name a few. And then actually finally, the third and final phase is when you actually create your learning experiences and the instruction that students will need in order to then execute and perform effectively and achieve the desired results that you've kind of laid out from the beginning. So again, it's most and very common, most common for instructors to kind of start at step three. But when you do that, you really run the risk of your learning objectives and your assessments not being aligned. And if your assessment shows success on the part of the learner, it's usually more so that it happened by chance than it happened because true learning actually took place or, or a true understanding actually took place of the content. And I, I have been trying to be more mindful about doing this, um, especially when I'm giving lectures or like in planning these podcasts, you know, determining learning object- objectives and then sort of framing from there. Um, but I 
could imagine that being much more challenging when you're sort of on the fly in the wards. It's not so much of a planned teaching environment. Could you tell us a little bit about your approach to attending on the wards and how you utilize this backward design? Absolutely. So, of course, backward design, I think, in its creation was really a framework for designing a course or a curriculum or a lesson plan. But it does have a lot of applicability to clinical practice as well. So for me, and and I don't know, this is probably because I am so used to kind of eating, breathing, living backward design that it naturally and intuitively for me over time was just how I was doing things in my clinical practice as well. And it really took conversations with other people for me to even recognize that I was actually, in fact, using backward design in my clinical practice. But when I think about it, what I really do, so if you think about stage one of backward design, on the first day that I start on service, I try to meet with each learner, either individually or in a small group, kind of grouped based off of their training level. So I'll meet with the medical students together, the interns together, the senior residents together. And in those groups, I will ask, just start by asking the learners what their goals are for the week while I'm on service. So is there any skill in particular that they really want to continue working on developing? And how can I personally, as they're attending, help them to achieve that goal? And then we kind of break it down even further and take that broad goal and try to develop specific measurable learning objectives that we will be then working on during the week. And this way we know that what the end game is and everything we do from that point forward is purposeful towards reaching that goal or objective. So that's like the first step of backward design. And that's what I try to do with all of my learners on the first day of service. Then stage two, you know, then I start to think about how am I actually going to assess my learner throughout the week to see if the identified objective was met. So this is second stage of backward design. And there are really many ways to incorporate assessments um, both formally and informally in the clinical setting. And ideally, educators can try to incorporate a variety of assessments to check for learners' understanding, right, throughout the week. So frequent informal checks for understanding, just asking learners to kind of gauge what their level of understanding is on a topic, also allowing for learners to receive ongoing feedback. The kind of the back and forth feedback process is, is another way that you can assess learners as well, allowing them to refine their skills allowing them to correct misunderstandings along the way. And then I think the clinical wards, both inpatient and outpatient setting, actually, you could also decide to incorporate performance assessments, performance-based assessments, such as like an OSCE, for example, that the learner by the end of the week would need to be able kind of to show a, a particular skill set in that performance assessment. So, and if, if you did go that route and do a performance-based assessment, then the learner ideally would be provided with, or you would have thought about, and then the learner would have been provided with a rubric of some sort in advance. So they kind of know exactly what the specific expectations would be on that assessment at the end of the week. So that's really stage two. So you basically done the first two stages before you ever really start your week, right? You kind of are doing all of that on day one. And then finally, um, stage three of backward design, you just start thinking about the learning experiences that you're going to try to incorporate throughout the week. So there are going to be obviously moments for direct instruction, like teacher-led instruction with the team. And there's going to be other moments, maybe like a brief chalk talk, or maybe you're going to model skills for your learners. Um, you're, again, using a feedback system. So there's a lot of different ways that as the week progresses that you could intentionally incorporate various teaching modalities to ensure that you're 
kind of linking the learning objectives to the final assessment that you're going to expect your learners to participate in. Wow, Kendra, that was amazing. That was like a whirlwind tour, I feel like, of something that already blows my mind because um, <laughs> you're like naming something that and describing it so beautifully. I wonder if we can kind of zoom in on maybe step one of backward design and specifically think about when you yourself are approaching your team and let's say you're kind of gathering the interns together, but not actually as a group, but maybe one-on-one. How do you determine kind of what the desired results are for that individual? And are you then kind of with them writing down learning objectives and kind of the skills that they're hoping to develop or even using, you know, the various complexities of Bloom's taxonomy and kind of how are you, um, I don't know, making that, immortalizing it or kind of writing it down and making it something that you're going to check back in on later? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think for me, it really starts with this casual conversation where I'm just trying to initially just develop a relationship with the learner because, you know, this whole processing really does incorporate a lot of feedback, a lot of self-reflection. And in order to do that effectively, it really starts with a relationship where the learner understands, like, my goal is to only help them to reach their goals. And it's putting... Well, you try to kind of remove that hierarchy in medicine, right, to kind of remove as much as you can the intimidating aspects where, you know, you have your attending giving you feedback and instructing you and assessing you. And instead, I really try to say like, okay, so what are your goals for the week and how can I more so as like a coach help you to achieve those goals? So I think starting with that initial conversation and kind of that feel to the conversation is a very important first step in terms of the goal or the learning objective itself, I really want that. And I think ideally that is something that the learner kind of already knows the skill that they want to develop further, right? Because then they're going to feel a more a self-motivation to work really hard towards um, improving that skill. There are definitely sometimes learners who don't have a, any idea of some, what they should be working on, or maybe it's their first rotation. And so it's very overwhelming and there are hundreds of things that they could really be working on. So in those cases, either thinking about the the syllabus, if it's like a, a medical student on a clerkship, or thinking about uh, the core competencies for residents to kind of help guide them a little bit in terms of what the goal could be. I've done it both ways. And then I've also kind of flipping backward design around in a crazy way have, you know, you can take even the medical student um, evaluation that you'll have to complete at the end of the week. And use that to kind of decide (laughs) what specific skill set the student may want to work on during the week. So that's kind of what the conversation looks like. It is more general. And I think when it comes to the learning objective itself, in my mind, and even verbally articulated with the student, you know, some of the, the great verbs from Bloom's taxonomy will come to play. I harp on that all the time. I think it's really, really important that we don't use verbs like, oh, the student will be able to understand blah, 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 because that's a really immeasurable verb. How do I measure a student's level of understanding? So I do think that the verbiage used in creating the learning objective is very important, but it is not something that we physically write down together. It is more so just, hey, we're going to have this conversation about it. And then for me, I just keep track of the goals and the broader goal and then the specific learning objective on a note card for my learners, kind of just like in one place so that I have it and I can refer to it and even make notes on 
their demonstration of that skill like throughout the week so that it then informs and, and reminds me of opportunities for instruction and feedback as we go. I love that. And for some of our listeners that might not be as familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, can you just briefly explain what that is? Yes, absolutely. So basically Bloom created, there are various learning domains and the cognitive domain takes into consideration kind of levels of understanding that we have when it comes to education. So the lower level of Bloom's taxonomy is more like, can your learner show understanding or list things or explain things? And kind of as you move up Bloom's taxonomy, the skill becomes increasingly, I guess you could say like cognitively complex. So can your learner then differentiate between two concepts? Can your learner compare and contrast two things? Can your learner create something or analyze something? And so I think one thing that sometimes people misunderstand is that you have to have only upper level verbs included in your learning objectives, but that's not the case, right? You may have one learning objective where a student lists something and then uh, also a higher level learning objective where they have to compare and contrast two things. And ideally, you kind of have a mixture of all of them or you're kind of guiding them with progressive learning objectives to get them to reach a higher level of understanding for the concept. I hope that explained it okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. That was, no, that was amazing. I feel like I just got a refresh, like a re-up on, <laughs> on Bloom's. Bloom would be so proud right now. <laughs> so per your advice, Charlotte sits down with her upper level resident, Paul, on the first day of the rotation and asks Paul about his goals for the week and if there's any particular skill he'd like to develop further. Paul, a second year resident at the start of the year, says that he wants to be more confident with making clinical decisions. With this goal in mind, Charlotte then comes back to you to ask for help on ways to both assess and improve her resident's confidence with clinical decisions. What do you tell Charlotte? So in this case, I think what you have to actually start with before we can talk about how you will assess him is what is the actual specific learning objective, right? So I don't think... At this point, Charlotte, you would be able to move forward with this kind of general vague goal that Paul has described to you. So, you know, when we think about learning goals, those are broad, general statements. They're usually very hard to measure. And in this case, you know, measuring his confidence in making clinical decisions may be a little bit challenging. So I would start actually by having Paul turn that into a specific learning objective. First, and a learning objective is the performance or the behavior that you really expect the learner to be able to do before you consider them competent. So, learning objectives drive your evaluation, they drive your outcomes, they drive your instructional strategies, and they need so you really need to solidify a specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time bound learning objective with him first. So, I mean, you can do that, obviously, with back and forth questions, kind of dig a little bit deeper, see what it is that he's actually really saying. Is it an issue with medical knowledge when it comes to management plans? You know, this is kind of vague, so it could mean a variety of different things. So I just think you'd want to clarify that with him first. So maybe he says, you know what, I really want to develop management plans independently using evidence-based guidelines or something like that. So then your specific learning objective would be that by the end of the week, Paul will be able to independently develop thorough management plans using evidence-based guidelines. 
And you can already see how that is way more specific. It's definitely something that you're going to be able to measure. Um, You can think of assessment tools that will actually be able to assess that. So it's just a better learning objective to start off with. And I and so just a side note, I very interestingly, if he had a learning objective like this for you, Charlotte, you are then also really going to have to have learning objectives for yourself because he can't do this if you don't give him the space to do it. Right. So if someone were to come to you um, with this being their goal, you yourself as a learner learning how to be an attending would also have to simultaneously create learning objectives for yourself that give Paul the space to have that independence, right? So just as a side note, that's something that would definitely have to happen. Otherwise, you would prevent him from being able to achieve this goal or in this learning objective. Sandra, I love this. This is like meta smart goal creation or like meta smart objective creation, because I don't think we talk about that very much because these are situations. And Charlotte, I love this case because how many times do we get people who are like, I'm just like trying to get better. And you're like, what does that mean? And then you realize like you have to figure out what that means for yourself too. And, Mm -hmm. and like creating your own smart objectives. Cause I, I hear you kind of outlining that mnemonic and, I just uh, really want to point out that like that takes a lot of self-reflection in both yourself and also figuring out how to help Mm -hmm. Paul in this case do that same type of reflection. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So that would be stage one. And then I guess the case initially asked for help on how you would assess him. Um, So stage two, right? Thinking about the acceptable evidence that you're going to use to create assessments for Paul And so, Charlotte, I think you would really need to think about in this case, like, what assessments are you going to use to really show that Paul has achieved this desired result? What assessments are going to show that he's developed this skill? And so when you think about the various assessment tools and kind of the ones that would be easier to use um, in a clinical setting, you could observe Paul. You could observe him creating management plans, maybe as a silent observer when patients are admitted to the hospital. You are definitely going to observe him and then even be able to do informal checks for understanding when he's presenting his management plan the following morning on rounds. You could have Paul explain the management plan in terms of the evidence-based guidelines that he used, how he understood them, you know, kind of like go a back and forth dialogue. That would be another way to assess how he's doing. So informal checks for understanding, dialogues, observation. I think in this case, those are probably the types of assessment tools that you would really use. But whatever assessment tool you ultimately choose, you have to ask yourself if that assessment tool aligns with the initial goal and objective that you guys created together. Because you could say, oh, I'm going to have Paul do like write a I don't know, write an academic prompt about something, right? And and that in no way assesses this particular learning objective. So that's why it's so important to keep backward design in mind because the assessments you come up with ultimately have to align with the learning objectives that you guys um, created. And I have heard that you incorporate the entire team when you're giving feedback um, in kind of during presentations on rounds. Could you talk a little bit about how you use that method and how you engage the whole team in, in sharing feedback? Yes. So for me, actually, that process is very much, I, I incorporate two things. So not just the feedback, I actually also incorporate self-reflection. So there's a, a big self-reflection piece kind of followed by the feedback piece. And, and I think it's important to mention that because self-reflection 
not only like if you think back to learning theory, self-reflection is actually a very important part of experiential learning theory. For one, that's really a, a huge way that learners solidify information in an experiential way, which is obviously hugely important in a, in a way that a lot of our learners are going to be learning in a clinical setting in particular. And then self-reflection is also really important when it comes to assessments. So a learner being able to self-assess um, and kind of participate in metacognition, like that is also a very important aspect of, a, of assessments in general. So, so self-reflection in and of itself is um, key to this entire process. And what that really looks like for me on the teams is that after we step outside of a room, after we've had a patient encounter on morning rounds, one or two patients, maybe one or two situations on rounds that morning, I will ask the group to pause for one to two minutes outside the patient room and we will just self-reflect on how the encounter went, right? And, and as the facilitator of that, I may ask questions like, so how do you guys think that encounter went? What went well? What could we have done better? How was our communication with the patient during that encounter? Do you think that the patient understood our management plan for the day? You know, there's a variety of questions you can ask, and you can obviously ask questions depending on deficiencies you saw happening inside the room. But then you kind of leave it open for whoever feels comfortable to think about the encounter and to share their thoughts on what went well or what you could do better. And I never I try not to really put people on the spot. I leave it more open-ended. I may say, okay, hey, medical students, what do you guys think? And then, you know, hey, residents, what do you guys think? Just so that people, you know, every learner has a chance to participate. But that self-reflection part is then followed by an opportunity for instruction through feedback. So I will then use that as a moment to be like, okay, guys, so what feedback, and I will even ask learners to give each other feedback. I'll ask them to give me feedback. Residents can provide feedback to each other. You know, the feedback is multidirectional during these encounters, but I would say, so would anybody like to give feedback then on how we could do that better, right? What are your thoughts? And, and I think that um, this process, when it's done well, feedback then just happens naturally amongst your learners. It is not a like attending down towards medical students. It's not, it doesn't have to be a threatening or intimidating situation. And I've actually had, I've had this one team, I'll never forget it. It was actually on pediatric wards where we as a team got so good at stepping outside of the room, doing a quick self-reflection and then immediately followed by uh, feedback that there was a day where our census was too high to do it. And the medical students were like, we didn't do feedback today. We didn't do our self-reflection. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, I, there are definitely learners on the team that really, really value that experience. What I would say is that it sounds like it's a very time-consuming process. It doesn't have to be. Again, pick maybe one or two encounters that you want to do on, like have a reflection and feedback conversation about a day. And then maybe you don't even do it every day, right? Like if it's your, at some hospitals, if it's your admitting day, maybe that's not the best day to do it. If you have a lower census, maybe you take opportunities on those days to really have these conversations. And I think the last thing I really want to point out is that it's a really great opportunity for senior residents to step into the pretending and to work on leadership skills themselves, to work on guiding, reflection, feedback conversations. So in particular, if you had a, a senior resident, Charlotte, who said, 
my goal is to work on my leadership skills, or my goal is to give better feedback, or my goal is to act as a pretending this week because I'm about to graduate and I'm going to be teaching now on the hospitalist teams, right? That is a great opportunity to actually put them in charge of this conversation, this piece of rounds. Um, And I've seen that work really, really well also for senior residents. Wow. I love that, Kendra. I feel like you just... um are just dropping pearls left and right. And I also feel like the self-reflection piece really levels the playing field. Like you kind of, or level the hierarchy in a lot of ways, asking for everyone to kind of share their reflections. And I also think Dr. Calvin Chow, our first guest uh, from our Curbsiders Teach series, would be so proud to hear you incorporating kind of the feedback conversations and how to make that such a natural part of rounds as part of your both like part of the backward design, but also just part of naturally what happens after we self-reflect and we come up with kind of almost like not necessarily a learning issue, but like a next step for ourselves, you know, and it's really it's just beautiful to watch that. So appreciate you like laying that out so clearly. It's really fun to participate in, too, when it goes well. I mean, but it, it really only works if you've established that rapport and relationship with your learners totally. from day one. And you've made it super clear, like, hey, our goal is just to get better as a group, as individuals. Um, and the ultimate goal is just to provide the best possible care we can to our patients. Right. If we don't like if we don't do it, who does it? So um, I I always say it in that kind of way so that it's never really about any individual not doing something well. It's only about how we can be better to take better care of our patients. And I think that takes a little bit of the intimidation. It's not a personal attack ever. We just want to to improve our skills so that we improve the care for our patients. That's amazing. I was definitely thinking you need a lot of psychological safety to make that work. Mm -hmm. And I I think it sounds like you are successful in that and and I, at least in my residency, did not always feel that. So I, I'm, I'm hoping things are changing and people are learning a lot from, from hearing from people like you. Okay. So let's start a different case now. Charlotte is on her second rotation as an attending physician and feeling a little bit more confident in her skill set. Uh, she had her day one goal setting meeting with her new upper level resident, Priscilla who tells her that um, she would like to improve her teaching skills specifically at the level of medical student learning. Given medical student learning and teaching is such a broad topic, Charlotte's a little unsure how to develop the three stages of backward design for Priscilla. And now I, Charlotte, come to you for some advice. So Charlotte, I'm wondering if we could role play this time a little bit and maybe you know, we don't have um, Priscilla here and I think that's okay, but I just want us like as if this were a mentorship meeting, kind of talk about the how you would in the future go through this conversation with Priscilla. Okay? Okay. So what's the first thing that you would think about if she came to you and said that that was her goal? So I think if that is the goal, I still think we need to get a little bit more specific in what the medical student education piece is going to look like? Will that be just some quick teaching pearls on rounds? Will that look like a chalk talk, a five-minute chalk talk at some point during the day? I think in order to really take us to stage two and three, I first need to know what does she mean? Okay. Yeah. So let's say for this case, she tells me that she wants to do a five-minute chalk talk once a week as the senior resident on the team. Okay. And then I would say, so we still need to be a little bit more specific. What is 
for example, that chalk talk going to be on? What is the topic? What's the setting? Yeah. Uh, Say I go back to her and she tells me she wants to do oncologic emergencies. And the level of the learner, like I mentioned, medical students, the setting would be kind of after rounds is what she's thinking. Um, And she asks even if I can come and just kind of observe her um, doing the chalk talk. Okay. So why don't you just go ahead and say it for us then what is the, how would you put that into a learning objective? Yeah. So by the end of this week, Priscilla will effectively deliver a five minute chalk talk about oncologic emergencies for the third year medical students on the team. Okay, great. So you took something that was really broad in general, not measurable yet, and have now created a specific measurable learning objective. Are you comfortable with that learning objective? Do you think it's good? It's something that you will be able to assess? Great. What would your next step be? Yeah, so the next step is going to be how I'm going to have assessments for this learning objective for her during the week. And I think maybe one way this could evolve or take place would be little teaching pearls throughout the week that she can provide on rounds and then maybe incorporate those into the chalk talk later on. I'm not sure. What assessments could you think of? Well, I think probably one thing is going to be the actual chalk talk at the end of the week, right? So that's going to essentially be a performance-based assessment that you will be able to assess her in real time giving the chalk talk. So I would say there's a performance-based assessment there automatically for you, kind of a more formal assessment at the end of the week. One thing you'd really want to make sure of is that you have a rubric that you are going to use to assess her. And she should really know what that rubric is going to look like going into the chalk talk. So for example, maybe it's a checklist of things that she should include, right? Her chalk talk five minutes should probably have a learning objective at the beginning. It should have some sort of teaching modality in there, maybe a way to assess learners, right? (laughs) Backward design within her chalk talk, basically. And you would want to make sure that your rubric is kind of accounting for each of the things that you would want to see happen in the chalk talk. So I think that's one big assessment that you could do. And then I think also, you're right. I mean, she could incorporate teaching throughout the week And then you could even do informal checks for understanding along the way to kind of see where she stands with her knowledge on those things. And then in terms of the teaching piece, so it seems like we kind of have stage one, stage two, and now moving to stage three. And I think maybe this is sometimes the hardest part of the backward design. In what way would you incorporate the teaching towards this learning objective for Priscilla? Yeah, it 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 gets tough. I think in this case, one thing that you're definitely going to have to teach her how to do is how to give a chalk talk, right? So there is going to be a one-on-one kind of direct instruction between you and Priscilla on how to even deliver a chalk talk, right? She can't have that learning objective where you have to give a chalk talk and then the assessment where I'm assessing you doing a chalk talk if she's never given a chalk talk and she has no idea what that means and how to even structure it or set it up. So there's going to be direct instruction around that. And then I think you also want to think about like potentially what other materials or resources would be needed in this case. So is there anything else that you would need to teach Priscilla really, right? Like, do you want to have like go through cases with her on oncologic emergencies, maybe even teach her about various teaching modalities. So there's going to have to be a piece here where, and I think in this case, probably some more direct instruction, like I mentioned before, I think it's probably going to be the biggest thing that you would have to do in this case. Do you have any other thoughts, Charlotte? 
for how to actually execute the planning and the experiences for Priscilla here? No, I think you have to lead her and in, in kind of teach the teacher approach for this type of learning objective. I, th- I think the other thing that would probably be really helpful is if you model it for her, right? So, you know, direct instruction is more like lecture-based format, like let me teach you about this thing. But modeling is another very effective teaching modality. And I think in this case, you would probably need to give or should give a chalk talk to the learners as well and then model that skill set for Priscilla. I think that'd be a very important learning experience for her to have and then before she could then implement it effectively. I love that. Well, thank you for walking through the three steps. And I I think that's so so valuable to hear kind of those concrete examples. And I can definitely imagine sort of, you know, if a learner gave me that and I wasn't really in, gave me that goal and I wasn't really in the mindset of trying to be a really proactive teacher, just sort of saying, great, well, you can do a chalk talk on Wednesday and I'll watch you and give you feedback. Um, and and I think that really limits the amount of learning experience because she's sort of already given it. And yes, she can use that feedback to improve for next time. But I, I really like the idea, idea of modeling it and helping her design it ahead of time much more intentionally. Well, this has been wonderful. Do you do you think there are any other important pearls that we haven't covered around backward design or any other key points you really want to hit home around backward design? I think we've covered the majority of it. I think that the just a big take-home point that I would bring up is just that I don't want people to be intimidated by backward design. You know, it is definitely something that really takes a lot of intentionality. It takes time and structure to kind of get yourself used to the process. But once you get familiarized with the process, just trust me, it does become just intuitive. You just kind of start doing it naturally. So I don't want people to be intimidated and think, oh, I I, I can't do that with creating lesson plans. And I certainly don't have time to do that in the clinical setting. I think that if you just practice it enough and, and kind of force your force yourself to to think about these steps intentionally, you probably won't be that surprised to find that you are probably doing aspects of this already, but maybe just not in the same format. So it, it's something that can become just a routine part of our clinical practice and a routine part of our role as educators. And I think it's an, an invaluable framework to use to really, really ensure that our learners have true understanding of the content and not that that perceived understanding that you think they have is just happening by chance, right? And Kendra, because you're an like incredible teacher and role modeler, I wonder how did you kind of continue to develop these skills? Or do you have any suggestions to our listeners about resources or ways that they can kind of improve their familiarity, their skill set with backward design and kind of giving it a shot? Sure. So for those who are really interested in curriculum design and maybe lesson planning in that approach or either with undergraduate medical education or resident medical education, or again, implementing this skill set in the clinical setting, I would definitely recommend reading Understanding by Design, written by Grant Wiggins and Jay McTie. It explains beautifully how you can incorporate backward design in each chapter kind of elaborates on the various stages of backward design. The examples used in the text are really for like primary and secondary education. So there's a lot of examples kind of around elementary school classrooms, but it is so relevant and uh, applicable to medical education and teaching adult learners. I used Understanding by Design to really develop 
and think about how we were going to teach our med ed pathway residents. So it's definitely applicable. And I would recommend that anyone's interested, um, give it a shot. Wonderful. That sounds like a great resource. And is there anything that you'd like to plug anything you've been working on recently or something that you recently published or want to give yourself a shout out for? Well, Charlotte and I are working on a project together. So um, Charlotte was actually one of my medical educator pathway residents at the University of Miami. And we applied for a grant where our med ed pathway residents will, using a train the trainer model, actually train resident participants how to create effective lesson plans using backward design. Uh, And then in the second phase of the project, those resident participants will use the skills that they've learned to teach patients in a shared medical visits. So I'm really excited about it. You know, we are, we finished our surveys, we have our IRB, and we're hoping to actually recruit our initial resident participants um, this fall and to do our initial training sessions. So that sounds so cool. Part of me wants to be like, can I share, can I ask my patients if they want to enroll in your study to learn <laughs> from your residents? It'll be like a bi-coastal experience. Hey. If they want to. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like an idea. I know. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much, Kendra. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a lot of fun. So that was such a great episode with Dr. Van Kirk. I feel like I I really learned a lot and will take home a lot to um, teaching in my outpatient setting. Um, and one thing I'm really going to work on, which I think we've talked about in prior episodes, but I still need a lot of work on, is really helping learners uh, kind of narrow down their goals. And I was kind of saying off air, I accepted this week a goal of I will become more time efficient. So um, Dr. Van Kirk really outlined how to kind of narrow that down and make an actual goal that you can then assess and help the learner build towards. So that is what I'm going to work on this week. Um, What about you, Charlotte? I think uh, the main takeaway I'll take back into clinical practice is the self-reflection piece. Sometimes the days get so busy and hectic, but taking a minute or two, I think, to pause and have the learners pause and reflect will just help us all grow. What about you, Ira? Yeah, I'm just still blown away. I'm still kind of processing the amount of uh, pearls that were dropped and uh, Charlotte, your incredible role play and role rehearsal um, in that in this episode. I think for me, I really loved how Kendra outlined step two and specifically kind of how are we going to um, have evidence that the learner kind of has met their goal or has kind of come up with their uh, learning objective has been met. And so I really like how she explained, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to check for understanding? What are going to be the ways that I have a clear example of meeting the outcome, a clear assessment uh, strategy? So I'm kind of thinking about how I will name that for myself, but also name that for the learner too, that, you know, I'm going to watch you do this chalk talk or what formative or summative assessment I'm going to do. So really looking forward to implementing that in my next week of teaching. And this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project, and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio, and also to our social media team, Andrew DeLatte on Instagram and John Ong on Twitter. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. 
And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowska. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little mm, nugget of medical edutainment. Yummy. <laughs> Until Yummy. next time, yeah. I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblind. And I'm Dr. Charlotte Shaklin. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.